I'm Tristan. I'll be reading the scripture today. It's 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. It says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Brandon. I'm the lead pastor of SOMA. I'm glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, I want to remind you, take a moment, get your worship guide out. Um, just fill out that connect card. We'd love to just... Uh, get together with you, hear your story, get you on an email list, just, you know, again, no pressure, but um, love to help you find your way. We know everybody in this room is on a spiritual journey of some kind, a faith journey. Uh, even if you don't know that you're on a faith journey, the Lord has you on a faith journey, and that's why you're here. Whether you got uh, conned into coming here this morning by somebody inviting you out and then hoodwinking you into this place, uh, hey, let's go check out the nice art in the art gallery, and boom, you're in church. Or uh, if you just, you wanted to come and you're not even sure why you're here, we're glad that you're here. And we know that God has a design and a purpose and an intent for each person that's here this morning. And so we want to celebrate that and, and uh, welcome you here. Uh, several months ago, we, we started working through this book, 1 Corinthians. And it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to uh, a young cosmopolitan church that he planted that's full of new Christians trying to figure out how to live out their Christianity in a progressive urban kind of culture. So a lot, you can see the parallels between a place like this where we find ourselves uh, largely a very young church in a cosmopolitan urban context in one of the most progressive parts of our city in Broad Ripple, right? Where the kind of the tagline of our city is we're open if you are, right? Like that's our part, that's Broad Ripple. We love it and we embrace that. But what does it look like to be a Christian in a very progressive culture? Like some of you are very progressive people and you're you, you enjoy that, and you're kind of running away from a traditional culture that you grew up in. And so can you be a progressive person, for instance, and still be a Christian? Like, what does that look like to merge together uh, just who you are and, and your Christianity and make sense of that? And so we've been in for the last several weeks a miniseries within this book of 1 Corinthians, which we're doing for the next year, um, on sex and marriage and singleness. So this is not like us trying to single out no pun intended, any particular population of people this morning, even as we talk about a very difficult subject like divorce. It's simply to acknowledge that this is in the scriptures. Paul addresses it, and so we're going to talk about it. And what we basically said, if you weren't here the last several weeks, is that uh, it's kind of the gist of, if I'm <clears throat> boiling down about three hours worth of sermons, what we said was that God created our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, to be good. Now, God gave us bodies. He created them. He sustains them uh, as a gift of grace to be stewarded and leveraged for his glory and for our good. So he determines what's good and what's bad when it comes to how we use our bodies, whether that's food or sex or drink or whatever, uh, that it's all about um, stewarding our bodies towards the glory of God. And ultimately, we, we see that there's, that's not mutually incompatible with our own joy and our own happiness. So in other words, 
God's glory is not against our joy. As a matter of fact, the most freeing way we can live is to see our lives lining up with the way that God designed it to work so that we can maximize our joy, not limit or uh, truncate in some way the joy that God designed to work. And so, but we said there's going to have to be some choices made and some limitations, if you will, so that we can actually be free to live the way that God designed us to live. And so we said that our bodies are good, that sex is good, that marriage is good, um, but that sex was designed to flourish inside the covenant relationship of marriage. That is God's primary context where he, w- he wishes for sexuality to kind of be expressed. And if you're single, we said um, last week, you're not to have sex before marriage. I mean, like, is anybody surprised by that? Okay, we're in a church. We're preaching from the Bible. Um, no sex of any kind, no uh, intercourse of any kind, no course of any kind, just no sex before marriage. That's what the Bible teaches before you're married. And if you're married, have lots of sex, right? Like, that's the biblical ethic. Don't do anything until you get married, and then after you get married, do everything. That's pretty much what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. If I were just kind of boiling it down. That's the biblical sex ethic. So we are not, as Christians, against sex. We are pro-sex. We are just pro-marriage, okay? And that's what the Bible says that we should be about. Now, this morning, we're going to move beyond to some of your chagrin and some of you are excited, your relief that we're not talking about sex this morning because you're like, man, you guys are like obsessed with it. Well, no, it's in, it's in this passage. Um, so some of you have like underlined and highlighted and you got this dog-eared and you're, you've been really amped up about this. And some of you are like, can we just please, this is awkward. Like I'm sitting next to my mother-in-law in church and this is just really, you know, not cool, which is a true story. Um, this morning, though, we're going to move beyond sex to talk about uh, what happens after sex, because there is life after sex. You guys know that, right? Like some of you guys, uh, you just crack me up, but I don't care how good the sex is. I don't care how much ecstasy it might bring you in the moment, whether you're single or married, and you kind of look to sex to fulfill you or satisfy you or bring vitality into your life. The truth is, whether you're a Christian or not, every sexual encounter must eventually give way, okay? Uh, even the, uh, the commercials will tell you, like it must give way at some point to something called a relationship. Every sexual encounter has to give way at some point. It can only last for so long, right? Like the bachelor party, let's say you're getting married, the bachelor party is over, the vows are exchanged, the bride has been kissed, the cake has been consumed or smashed, depending on you know, where you come on that. The dollar dance is over, right? Um, you sleep in that, maybe that's a Kentucky thing, but the dollar dance is over, um, you sleep in that wedding dress, ladies, one more time. You get into the room there and you sleep in that dress, trying to hold on to that magical moment forever, right? And you kind of think that's going to last forever. And, and then you wake up, and it's been my experience that you wake up the next morning next to another human being that you have promised to live with for the rest of your life. And all of a sudden, the weight of that decision comes home. Like the penny drops, like the quarter drops into the machine, and then clunk, it hits. And you realize, and you wake up, and in that moment there I found in marriage counseling over the years that there's one of two responses or realizations that can occur in that moment and then the subsequent weeks after the honeymoon because I know in this room we have some newlyweds and so you might be saying right now to your wife or whatever like baby that's not going to be us like uh, uh, you're awesome and that's never going to be us okay well we'll see you in counseling in like six months but here's what I will say to you will happen after the honeymoon two responses one you wake up and you roll over to the sound of, you know, toenails being clipped in bed, right? Like something, and you're just like, what in the world have I done? Like, you, you smell, there's like a weird funky smell in there, like morning breath. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I didn't realize. I thought you were that one person who didn't, you know, have that. And so you like, you wake up and you go, what 
have I done? And how do I get out of this? Like, like, is there a way to go back and hit the rewind? Because I was only thinking about, which is funny, but I was only thinking about the wedding, right? Ladies, I was only thinking about and all my life I spent planning the wedding. I've been looking through magazines and picking out dresses and thinking about what that day is going to look like. And this is like totally foreign to men. Like we don't even think this way. We're thinking about the wedding night, okay? Ladies thinking about the wedding ceremony, okay? But we get there and then we forget to realize like after that stuff's done, there's another human being in bed with you that you've committed to live with the rest of your life. So what in the world have I done? Or Best case scenario, you wake up and over several weeks you begin to realize, okay, I love you and I'm committed to you and, 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 and I love Jesus, but you're, you're jacked up. Like you're just, you're messed up, okay? I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere, but, but you're messed up, right? Like, and so, I mean, for, for me, like that, you know, last I think Emily, the veil was kind of lifted like on the way back from the honeymoon, you know, where I said something that was just stupid and idiotic and she is like, wow, okay, where's this guy been? Like you weren't here, uh, you know, two weeks ago. Welcome to the marriage, Mr. You know, Mr. Brandon Shields. Like, this is the real guy stepping out here. She's still perfect. I haven't, you know, that shoe hasn't dropped for me with her. But her with me, it's kind of like, what happened? What did I get myself into? And here's, here's the crazy thing about all of that is that those cute little personality quirks, we'll call them quirks, that drew you together in the first place, like, like you know, he's so witty. Like, he's so funny. And that, like, draws you together because you're a girl that likes to laugh and you always want the guy that's going to be, like, the boisterous party guy, right? Like, he's at the center of all the attention and he's always got the joke and he's always got the line. And then you get married and all of a sudden that doesn't become so cute when you're in an argument, right? Like, he always has a comeback. He always has something to say. And it's like, well, that's not really funny anymore. Like, actually, it's kind of annoying, right? And so it becomes like, like you know, she, whatever, like, you know, she uh, looks a certain way and then she has babies and her body changes. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I thought it was going to be this. And all these expectations begin to give way to reality, Right? And those cute little things that attracted you together in the first place, you know, like she's so nice. She's the nicest person. In the, like it was the funniest one. Like, guys, like I married this girl because she was the sweetest girl I'd ever known. And then all of a sudden, like you're in the heat of the moment. And you're like, will you stop being so nice? Will you be mean for like a second? Will you, I want to fight here. We gotta, you can't just go, oh, well, whatever you say. Like I want to fight. And that becomes annoying. It becomes like, like fingernails on the chalkboard of your soul, right? It just begins to grate on you. And you grade against one another over time, and you fight, and you find yourself fighting against this, around the same issue over and over and over again. All of your fights re- begin to revolve around the same issues, around the kids, around heart issues, around emotional things, around baggage from the past that now you begin to unearth, and now it becomes the major focal point of your marriage. And you find yourselves fighting and fighting and fighting, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day, or you, you lay in bed at night, and you begin to think to yourself, is this the rest of my life? Like, just really it. Like, this is the rest of my life. What I have to look forward to until death do I part is fighting and grating against one another and annoying one another and occasionally halfway making up, but then only to realize we didn't really make up and we're still mad about it. Like, is this the rest of my life? Because I don't think I can do this. How do we get here, right? Like, how do we go from these two young, happy, bubbly, you know, like just giddy in love, you know, 20-somethings to like now we're in our 30s and we can't stand to be, it feels like a business relationship. We are living in the same house, but probably maybe even sleeping in separate beds or sharing the same bed, but there's no warmth, there's no intimacy, there's no pursuit. It's just a business contract. 
So, I mean, how do we get here? And and where do we go from here? And and sadly and statistically, by year seven, 50% of you in this room who are married will end up in divorce, just statistically speaking. Um, And and on this issue, Christians are no different. So this is Christians, non-Christians. Christians certainly do not have the moral ground, the moral high ground here. We, our statistics are as bad, if not worse, than the rest of culture because you lay a spiritual layer on top of that and you begin to use spiritual language and say, well, two people who love Jesus, everything's just going to work out fine. So let's just pray and let's sprinkle some little, you know, Jesus pixie dust on everything and everything's going to be great. So now you've, now you've just added to that a layer of naivete and then eventually what's going to just create a huge problem in your marriage five, ten years down the road. So what, the question we want to ask this morning is what do we do when marriage goes bad? What do we do when marriage goes bad? Many of us in this room, as we talk about divorce, and that's kind of what this text is dealing with this morning, Paul's instructions to the church on what happens when marriage begins to fall apart. And then the hard thing about this message is like so many of us have been touched by divorce, right? Like so many of us, our, 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 our world has been shaped, our view of life has been shaped by a relationship gone bad. Especially if you're under the age of 35, 40 years old, like, I mean, it's just... I remember like in the third grade, a teacher asking kids in our public school class to raise their hand if, if their parents were like married, you know, and they were, it was like unanimous. Like there was like one poor little kid over there in the corner whose parents weren't still married. Like it's a, kind of a cruel thing to do in third grade, but we didn't know any different. And so, but like by high school, just, I mean, this was the mid eighties and by the nineties, like it was almost flipped the other way. And so like a lot of my classmates, as we got into our late teenage years, saw their parents' marriages begin to kind of unravel and break down. And, and, and most of us now in this room have been touched by, and we know people that are divorced, our parents, our siblings, right? Like it's touched my family too, like the siblings, people close to you, cousins, uh, close friends that you've walked through the pain of a relationship gone bad. Some of you, and just to relieve you, like, because I know some of you walk in and we begin to talk about this and you get nervous because you think, here we go. Here's where he like calls down judgment and wrath on me because man, I'm in this room today and I'm walking through a divorce or I've been through a divorce. And let me just put you at ease. That is not by any means what our goal and our purpose is today. But some of you walk in here today as people who've been divorced. Some of you in this room are currently walking through a divorce. You've had to initiate a divorce or somebody has initiated a divorce against you or somebody has raised the question over an argument like maybe we should just get, and they use the D word, maybe we should just do it and just be done for the sake of the kids, for the sake of our long-term sanity. And you're walking through that right now. Some of you in this room, I'm not so dumb to think that there aren't some of us in this room right now that are plotting it in our hearts, even if we've not articulated it to our spouse. We are thinking about it. We are lusting after it. We are longing for, and we have made an emotional decision to begin to think about what would it be like to not be married to this person? What would it be like to be single again? What would it be like to have an out? What would it be like if they just died of natural causes, let's say? Right? Because we can't kill them because we're Christians. But what if they just, you know, like, hey, honey, don't wear your seatbelt today. You know, that thing's so restrictive. Bam. You know, like, what would it be like? That sounds kind of morbid. But I'm just saying, like, let's not act like some of you haven't thought about what it would be like to be out of this covenant, whatever that takes. And so the question is, um, what do we do? Like, is divorce inevitable? If you have... if Marriage involves hard work and it involves friction and fighting. Like, 
What do we do? Even for those of us who've been married for a year, two years, three years, the majority of the married couples in our church are under five years. And so, man, it just even that early on, we, we've seen that it can go really bad and really dark really quickly. And so what do we do? Is it inevitable? And what happens when the, inevitable, when, when the, when the worst case scenario happens, that we do get divorced, what happens when we can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again and we find ourselves in a place where the marriage is dead? Like, what does God think about that, and how do we work through that? So let me just give you a couple of instructions here from Paul's letter that I think will be helpful. And I really just want to work through this text pretty quickly, because uh, in this text, he only deals with a few issues. And so I want to just make a few comments on this text, and I want to back up and kind of take a broader perspective on the Bible, because the Bible has a lot to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And again, we don't have time to cover every single angle or facet of it, but I do want to just get down to some very practical questions, because these are coming out of like real life experiences with those of you in this room who are walking through these situations and scenarios. So I want to kind of counsel you through and say, here's how we as a church are going to engage, and here's our encouragement and advice to you when it comes to issues surrounding marital conduct conflict, divorce, and remarriage. Because a real issue, this is not hypothetical and theoretical, this is very, like, now. And even if you're single, um, some of you are beginning to think about marriage and what all that looks like, or maybe helping somebody else process through that. And so I want to be honest with you, because again, the, the picture that I just painted for those of you who are single are like, blah, like, who wants to do that? Like, I, would, I don't want to get married. That's exactly why I'm single and enjoying, you know, having the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. But as we said last week, marriage is not something to be feared, it's something that for most of us, over time, God wants us to embrace. And so if that's the case, then we can't walk into marriage, you know, with like prenuptial agreements and kind of thinking like, well, you know, a prenuptial agreement is basically like saying this marriage is going to fall apart. And when it does, I want to have contingencies, right? Like, so it's kind of just like you're already acknowledging before you start that the thing's doomed for, the, for divorce. And I want to say to you that's not the case. And so let's look at this together. Let's go back into Paul's instructions in verse 10. Um, and see what he says about divorce and remarriage and all this kind of stuff. So verse 10, here's what Paul writes. He says, to the married, those of you who are currently married, and I'm not talking about married in your heart. I'm not talking about married in your home. I'm talking about legally married before the eyes of the state and before the eyes of the Lord. You are married. You have a covenant relationship. You have a legal contract. You have, you know, before the eyes of the state, you are a legally married person. To the married, I say, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's saying this is a direct command from Jesus. So he's quoting a couple of different scriptures here, and he's pulling them together and summarizing what Jesus has said and what the Bible said uh, throughout. But he says, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now, that word separate is not like moving out or, you know, like sleeping away from your spouse. The word separate it means divorce. That's what the word mean, means in the original language. To, should not separate from her husband. But, verse 11, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And likewise, verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, it's the same instruction, separate, divorce. Uh, divorce, that, that word actually means to dismiss. In that culture, in, in Jewish culture, all a man had to do to divorce a woman was simply to dismiss her and say, there was like a phrase that they would utter, and they would say the phrase, and it was over, like, get your things and get out. And they could divorce for any reason. In Jewish culture, a man could, it was very patriarchal, very bent towards men and children. And so they could literally say, I don't like the way you did the dishes. There's some spots on those dishes. Dishes, get your stuff and get out. 
Like that was the mentality. If you see Jesus even addressing that to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19, they say, like, what, you know, what rules of engagement do we have to play by to get this woman away from me to divorce? So dealing with this very divorce-happy, even in Jewish culture, a very male-dominated, patriarchal, kind of abusive to women view of marriage in many ways. And so he says, don't dismiss them, don't divorce them, don't send them away into the wife, don't seek to separate, don't seek to walk out, because in Roman culture, in kind of Greco-Roman culture, which is where Corinth is, women had a little bit more rights, and so they could actually separate from their husband legally and initiate a divorce the same as a, a man could. And so uh, here's, here's the point, uh, point number one. As a general rule, a Christian should not divorce or initiate a divorce against another Christian. Right, like that's Paul's general instruction here in verses 10 through 12. As a general rule, now hear me, as a general rule, not as a policy, not a one-size-fits-all, not always, and we'll talk about some of the exceptions to this, but as a general rule, as a posture, not as just a, you know, uh, there's one way to do this, but just as a general rule, a Christian should not divorce, initiate divorce against another Christian. Now in this context, again, going back several weeks these people that in Corinth were not Christians, and then Paul comes and he preaches the gospel to them, and some of them become Christians, and now you have these mixed marriages, and you have, you know, a Christian spouse, a Christian husband, but not a Christian wife, and, and so these people were, and then you had some who were Christians, and they had this view of the body that was very bad, and so they saw the body as like a prison for the soul, and anything bodily, any pleasure that could be enjoyed was bad, and the spirit and the soul was good. And so they were seeking to kind of renounce all worldly pleasures, including sex, as we saw a few weeks ago, and marriage. And they were, they were like, you know what? If I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to be fully committed to him. I've got to do away with uh, more bodies and more pleasure and kind of become an ascetic, a, a monk, and just live out in, you know, in, the, in the desert and just kind of avoid any worldly pleasures. And what Paul says is no. No. He says you shouldn't renounce marriage. And the reason that he says that as a general rule that Christians shouldn't initiate divorce against other Christians. So where you have two believers, two professing believers in a marriage covenant, he says you should not, as a general rule, initiate divorce. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? This isn't just about uh, maintaining traditional values, right? Like this isn't Paul just going, you know what, let's all be good, conservative, Midwestern religious people, and Midwestern religious people don't divorce, right? Like that's not what he's saying. He's also not saying just tough it out. Like, like it's just about the marriage and it's about keeping up appearances so you tough it out because you made a promise. Like that's really inspiring, right? Like you made a promise, you made a vow, stick it out. Like that, that's really inspiring. Like why are you married? Well, I made a vow. That's not going to be on any Hallmark cards anytime soon, right? Like it's not, it's not very inspiring. But, but here's the thing about it. Marriage isn't just about marriage, and that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the reason that a Christian shouldn't initiate divorce is because this isn't just about marriage, because marriage itself is not just about marriage. Marriage is about God. You see, God, we said a few weeks ago, created marriage. God instituted marriage to be one of the keystones, the capstones, the foundations of society. This is a common grace thing, a gift that God has given to both Christians and non-Christians. The family, the Bible says, is a gift from God. It was created by God. It was his design. It was originally intended to be a gift, even though some of us think it's a curse, like it's handcuffs, it's a ball and chain. I mean, think about all the metaphors that we use to describe marriage. They're all negative, right, in our culture. Most of them are negative. Like, I've got to put up with you. I've got to tolerate you for the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. 
But man, God says it was designed to be good. It's designed to be good. And ultimately, marriage is about God. Ephesians 5 actually says it this way. He says, Paul writes and he says uh, about the marriage relationship. He says, marriage is not just a picture of a man and a woman coming together. He says it's actually a very mysterious, almost like a sacramental thing. It's so lofty, he says, that it pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. That the, the marriage relationship is intended to be a picture, a mural, a display, so to speak, in an art center, a, a, a beautiful diorama, if you will, if you're an art person, a diorama of the grand redemption of God's covenant pursuit of his people. Like there's something going on beyond marriage. It is a deep and abiding and lofty thing. And specifically, it says that marriage pictures God's covenant pursuit, his covenant faithfulness to his people. That's why in the Old Testament, we talk about marriage and we talk about contracts. We talk about signing paperwork, like I'm a, I'm a minister, I'm ordained by the you know, state of Indiana to do marriages. I've done a couple weddings since I've been here, and we go and we sign the marriage covenant, you know, we sign that, or that marriage contract, and we mail it into the state, and that's what kind of makes you legally married in the eyes of the state of Indiana. And we talk about it in terms of contracts and signing contracts, which we know if you can sign a contract, you can revoke a contract. But the Bible never talks about marriage as a contract. It talks about marriage as a covenant relationship, right? And so in the Old Testament, they actually would speak of cutting a covenant. And so what they would do when they would enter into an agreement uh, where God enters into, if you read like the story of Abraham, where he enters into a covenant relationship, he chooses, he initiates, he, uh, he brings everything to the table in this relationship. God is the source, he is the instigator of a covenant relationship towards Abraham. And when he comes, it says they, they cut this covenant. And the way they cut the covenant was literally they would take a dove or they would take an animal and they would cut the animal. It sounds very gross and bloody, and it was. And they would chop the animal in half and they would lay the pieces outside. And the Bible says that God literally, his spirit passed through the pieces of animal flesh. Uh, and, and when two individuals would enter into a covenant, they would do the same thing and both parties would pass through the pieces of the animal signifying that if I don't keep my end of the covenant, if I don't fulfill my covenant obligations, let it be so to me as it's been to this animal. Let me be ripped to shreds. Let me be cut in half. Let me be undone completely before I would let this covenant fail. And that's the idea behind God's covenant faithfulness. That's the idea behind marriage is that marriage is a picture of a covenant relationship between God pursuing his covenant people. When you think about the, the story of Hosea and Gomer, one of the most one of the craziest stories to me in the Old Testament, uh, where God calls this man named Hosea. If you want, this is like a thrilling, almost like a reality show. Like he calls Hosea in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter one, and he says, I want you to go and I want you to marry, and I'll use the nice language. The Bible uses much more sultry language. He says, I want you to go and marry a prostitute and I want you to make her your wife. And not just like, I've got to marry her because God told me, but I want you to ferociously pursue her heart. I want you to go after her. I want you to love her. I want you to pursue her. I want you to be for her. I want you to cover her. And, and this is going to be a symbolic picture of my love for Israel. And so God's covenant love of his people. And then what happens in the story, we all know the story. Some of us, if you grew up in church, you know the story. Hosea pursues Gomer. He marries her. He, and, and then she goes and she commits over and over and over again, she is unfaithful to her husband, Hosea, Gomorrah is. And she commits adultery, and then eventually she actually becomes the property of another man. She gets sold into slavery. And the beautiful picture is God calls her. He says, don't leave her just out there to, to kind of waste away. He says, I want you to go and buy her back. 
And the Bible says that Hosea goes and he pursues her. This woman who has committed treason against him. This woman who has spit on him. This woman who has just completely drug his name through the mud. And he goes and he loves her and he brings her back. And, and he buys her back. And her, I mean, the, the mother of his children, he, he takes her back. And, and that's really what the Bible says marriage is supposed to be like. It's God's covenant pursuit. He pursues us, right? Like he pursues us in the midst of our treason, right? Like and he's, the, the analogy there is you and me. So we are not Hosea. We are Gomer. We are, the unfaithful, we are the unfaithful ones. We are the faithless ones. We are the ones who turn our back on God. We are the ones who go prostituting ourselves after idols, running after money and sex and power and fame and all of these things, relationships and immorality. And God says, I'm going to continue to press in. And where you are faithless, I'm going to be faithful. And that's what a marriage covenant is to be like. It's the picture of two sinners in a relationship with one another where they are constantly being unfaithful to one another with their words, with their actions, with their thoughts. And yet we continue to pursue, we continue to initiate. Why? Not just to white knuckle it just because we made a vow, but just to simply picture and say this isn't even about marriage. This is about God and about his pursuit of us. And when people get divorced... The reason that the Bible says God hates divorce, not that he hates divorced people per se, but that he hates divorce, is because divorce is a lie about God. Divorce is a lie about God. It repudiates, it is a visible repudiation of the glory of God and his covenant pursuit of his people. And when two people get divorced, it is saying to the world that, man, this is how God is. Because we are believers, we are followers of Jesus and it is lying to the world about the nature and the character of God. And so that's why Paul says, as a general rule, Christians shouldn't seek to initiate divorce. Now we're going to talk about exceptions. And we're going to talk about when we can and when it's allowed. But as a general rule, that we should not be the ones initiating divorce where we have two believers in a marriage. Now, secondly, we see in this passage, not only should we not initiate divorce because it's good, because it pictures the glory of God and the covenant, uh, covenantal faithfulness of God to the rest of the watching world, but secondly... The Bible also says that Christians shouldn't divorce their unbelieving spouse if they can live together in peace. Christians should not divorce their unbelieving spouse if they can live together in peace. Let's go on to verse 12. To the rest I say. So he kind of concludes that section, verses 1 through uh, 11 there by saying, Do not get divorced. Don't be divorced. Don't renounce your marriage. Stop renouncing sex. Be together. If you're married, be married. If you're single, be single. That's what he says. To the rest... I say this, and these are going to be the rest of the people he's talking about, the ones that don't apply in the verse, first 11 verses. He says, I, not the Lord, meaning I don't have a direct command from Jesus here, but I'm still an apostle, so I'm going to give my authority on this, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace or to be a peacemaker. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, what was going on in Corinth was 
these believers, these people were becoming believers, and you had one of the parties that would become a Christian, and the other was not a Christian. So they were saying, well, this being, this living together in a deep union. We talk about marriage. We talked several weeks ago about the Hebrew word that means the mingling of souls, the mingling of souls, the coming together of two souls, the joining together. Marriage, sex is not just two bodies colliding. It is the union of two souls, right? That's why it's hurts when it separates. That's why divorce hurts so bad. That's why it hurts when you get sexually involved with somebody and then you separate. So it's this deep coming together. And they were saying, if it's this deep coming together of souls, then can I really be united? Does it, does it make me unclean to be united to an unbeliever? Well, I'm a Christian and they're not a Christian. They're joined to the world. I'm joined to Christ. Shouldn't I just renounce this marriage, get a blank slate and start over? And, and I bet in this room there are those of us who would find ourselves in the same situation. You got married, you were not Christians, and then, you know, through your 20s and 30s, you became a Christian, your 40s, and then your, your spouse is not a believer, and you go, well, what do I do? We no longer share the same values. We used to run around and do all kinds of crazy stuff, and now I'm a Christian, I'm trying to live like a Christian. What do I do? And just to be clear, he's not talking here about missionary dating, for those of you who are single. So he's not saying, he's not giving you a license just to go and find a non-Christian, get married, and then try to convert them and do missionary dating. What he's actually saying is, when you are married and you find your other spouse not sharing your values, you become a Christian and they're not, what do you do? And what he says is, do all that you can to stay in the marriage. Why? Why stay in the marriage? Why not just separate? Like, you, don't, you no longer share the deepest parts of who you are. He says, man, stay in the marriage to model and to try to win them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, you never know. Like, you being in that marriage, you modeling reconciliation, you modeling grace, despite the fact that for some of you right now, you may find yourselves being berated and belittled and mocked for your Christian beliefs. Like, they're giving you a hard time, and they're just taunting you and harassing you and provoking you. He says, you stay as you are. He says, don't seek to be separated. If they'll live with you and if they'll consent to live with you, don't leave. Stay in the marriage. Try to win them with the gospel. You never know what God can do. And he says, furthermore, don't, don't worry about becoming unclean. He says, grace is stronger than the curse. Grace is stronger than sin. So don't worry about, they're worried about kind of being contaminated or kind of you know, religiously unclean. And he says, man, you've been purified. You've been washed. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. That sanctifies, in a sense, your spouse and your children. Now, it doesn't make them saved. It doesn't rescue them from their sin. But there is a cleansing effect, a sanctifying, a set-apartness to your marriage where you don't have to worry about am I being contaminated by worldly values. He says, man, you are united with Christ. You stay and you serve and you bless and you share Jesus and you invite them to church and you try to win them with your, with your gospel-driven humility and love and service. And I, I think about some beautiful stories in our church. I was meeting with a couple that's been visiting our church um, several weeks ago, and they were telling me about how they had basically been raised uh, in the church but had never uh, gotten saved, never become converted, never became Christians into their 20s and 30s. And when they uh, were here in Indianapolis and moved here, not long after they moved here, the wife was invited uh, as to a Bible study at a church uh, not far from here. And while she was in that Bible study, the husband didn't want to go because he thought it was just a bunch of nonsense. While he was at the Bible study, uh, the wife heard the gospel and she became a Christian. And she came home and she said, guess what? I've become a Christian. To which he responded, you did what? Like, oh my goodness. Like my worst fears are now being realized. You're going to become some holy rolling freak Jesus show. Like just, and so he says, man, for a long time I despised that decision. But on the inside, he said, I, began, I immediately became 
curious. Like I began to read a little bit and kind of see what she was doing, and I would check in on her in a sly way. And he said, over the course of a year, man, the Holy Spirit was just pounding me and pounding me and pounding me. And he said, after a year, she invited me to come to this Bible study with her. And he says, I came to the Bible study with the lowest expectations, thinking these were the most backwards, fundamentalist freaks in the country. And he says, I come into this Bible study, and I hear the gospel of grace, and I get saved because of the prayers and the faith of my wife. Like, a, like what a beautiful, and then, then we raise our family. They have grown adult children now. We raise our family to know and to love Jesus Christ. And there's a legacy of faith that comes. It started with one woman saying, I will not leave. And that's what Paul says. He says, you're not going to be contaminated. Stay in the marriage. Model the gospel. But he says, if they choose to abandon you, if they choose to leave, like where you have two people that are not Christians, and then one becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden it's like, well, we can't go out and party anymore. We can't go out and smoke, you know, weed anymore. Like, we can't go out and do the things that we were doing before that was kind of like date night, you know? Like, let's go out and do some craziness. Like, all of a sudden, date night becomes, you know, something different. And, 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 and now she's trying to live out the gospel. He's trying to live out the gospel. And he says, if they leave, if they abandon the marriage, he says, let them go. You're free. He says, man, we're called to peace. Try to make peace. Try to exhaust every effort of reconciliation. But he says if they leave, if your unbelieving Christian spouse or unbelieving spouse leaves a Christian, he says you're free. Let them go. Now, this is not, again, a justification because what some of you will do with a passage like this is you will use this as a weapon to lay siege on your marriage. And you will say things like, and I've heard couples say, individuals in marriages say, um, you know, they, they lay siege. You know what I mean? To lay siege? Like, to starve out, to withhold, you know, like uh, sex and emotional intimacy through kind of passive aggressive behavior. They'll make the marriage intolerable to the point where one spouse just goes, I can't do this anymore. And then they'll go, see, he's an unbeliever. He wants to get divorced. Get out and I'm free. Like they will create like these little sieges in marriage and they will basically try to force the other person or bait the other person into a divorce all the while they themselves are the ones that are wicked and sinning and being treacherous in terms of how they're treating their spouse. And it just becomes like enemy combat. And so this is not justification for marital siege where you force your spouse to leave. What he's saying is if you have indeed a case where a spouse is an unbeliever and they choose to leave, let them go. We're called to peace. Now, that's what the Bible says, and that's what Paul says in this passage. But for some of you in this room, this is a deeply personal thing, right? Like, you have questions about, and you're wondering, like, what do I do? Like, I'm in the midst of thinking about this, or I've been divorced, or I'm wanting to be remarried, or I'm really engaging in some serious conflict. And so I just want to talk real quickly about a couple of questions that the Bible addresses when it comes to divorce and remarriage. I want to answer some of the questions that some of you guys have asked, some of the things that we're walking people through right now. And I just want to kind of briefly touch on these, and we can follow up in more detail. But just a couple of questions that we've been asked when it comes to what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. Uh, question number one. Does the Bible ever allow people to get divorced? Is it ever biblically permissible? And I say allowable or permissible because, again, it is always a deviation from God's design. This is God's design is one man, one woman for life. Covenant marriage, unbreakable, forged by the steel of grace. Like, that's the Bible's design. But is it ever biblically allowable for a person to or a couple to get divorced? And I, and I would say to you, yes. There are, certainly in the Bible, there are cases where there are justifiable grounds, permissive grounds for a couple to get divorced. Paul actually hints at it in this passage. He says, don't, don't get divorced in verse 10, but he says, if you do. 
Notice he says, if you do, he doesn't say, if you do, you're out of the church. If you do, you're under church discipline. If you do, you've got a scarlet letter of divorce on your chest forever. He says, if you do, remain singled or else be reconciled to your husband. So even Paul in this passage is kind of hinting to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. And I can give you the scriptures because we don't have time to go into this. But if you want to read up on this and see what the Bible has to say, there's a couple of primary passages in the New Testament that deal with this. Matthew chapter 5, uh, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, and Luke 16. Jesus specifically addresses issues around divorce and remarriage. But here's what we would say about this. Because of sin, yes, in an ideal world, do we want people to stay married? Yes. Are we for marriage, staying together? Yes. Are we pro-reconciliation? Yes. But because of sin and when reconciliation efforts have been exhausted, so hear me, exhausted, like there's no other hope of reconciliation outside of just this thing falling apart. This marriage is dead. We have tried to reconcile. We have given it a shot. We have given it a season. And by a season, I don't mean one conversation. I don't mean one month and a couple phone calls and a few emails. I mean a season, space, a process where every effort, every stone has been unturned, every effort at reconciling has been pursued, and every avenue has hit a wall. And because of sin and because people can get hard-hearted, Jesus says, sometimes divorce is permitted for the good of both parties. And the three conditions that the Bible says um, that is permissible, one is what Jesus would say is sexual immorality. That's pornea, that word pornea, pornography. It's a junk drawer category for sexual addictions, for uh, all kinds of different sexual issues uh, and, and sexual brokenness. But uh, it, it includes adultery, right? It includes fornication. It includes like all these words that we don't really use anymore. But just saying it's all kinds of sexual immorality. He says in the case where one person is sexually unfaithful, you are allowed or permitted to divorce when that person has been unfaithful. He also says in the case here of abandonment where one person leaves the marriage covenant, he says you're free. So where one person leaves, we're to treat them like an unbeliever and say, you know what, in a case of abandonment or desertion, you're free. And then the final case, Jesus says, is just straight up hard-heartedness. Like in some cases, there's so little repentance. There is just a hard-heartedness. There is a coldness. There is a just a bitterness. There is anger that runs so deep that the marriage is just killed because you have one person or two people who refuse to repent and their hearts get so hard and callous. They can't look at each other. They can't talk to each other. One person is walking in just blatant abuse or immorality and they refuse to repent. And Jesus says, Moses allowed divorce for those cases because your heart was hard, was hardened towards one another, and the marriage practically, functionally, spiritually, emotionally is dead. And so, yes, the Bible says there are times when we have to acknowledge that this thing is dead, that we have pursued every avenue of reconciliation. And divorce is permissible. So, the second question then, becomes, does this mean that, and this is one that's close to my heart, because this is one that I've experienced a lot in terms of doing pastoral counseling. Does this mean that, so we say, Paul says, don't initiate divorce. This is a general rule, Christian spouses should never divorce one another. And immediately, some of you ladies hear that, and you say, well, does that mean that women should stay in and allow and permit men to be abusive in a relationship, all under the guise of, uh, I'm not allowed to divorce you because I made a commitment, and I signed this piece of paper, and I made a vow before God, and we're Christians. 
So does that mean that women should stay in an abusive relationship? And the answer is absolutely not. Never, no, never, right? Like, no. And again, that doesn't mean, so people define that in different ways. That doesn't just mean like neglect, or that doesn't mean like um, he was harsh with me, so he's abusing me, okay? So ladies, doesn't mean we just get to carte blanche, redefine the meaning of abuse, but it does mean that there are a lot of ladies, and even in an audience like this, I would bet there are people in this room who are being emotionally abused, who are being physically abused, and their husbands masquerading as Christians, and really just boys who can shave and acting like Christian men are abusing. And so divorce becomes, for those situations, a social justice issue, a protection issue. And that's why Jesus addressed it in Matthew because men were putting these women out and creating these situations where women were uh, uh, vulnerable in the, in the culture because they had no means for it. They became impoverished. They were abused and exploited by other men. And they basically created a situation where women were being abused. And, and that's every traditional society, the scales always kind of tilted towards the men. And so what I would say, and this is absolutely not, we never tolerate abuse of any kind, emotional abuse, physical abuse. And if you are in an abusive relationship, bring them to me, bring them to us. We, we will, we will ne- if you are a covenant member of SOMA, we will not tolerate that. We won't allow that. And that's wrong and it's shameful. And shame on you, any of you men in this room who are doing that to your wife and then trying to say, well, Jesus says we can't get a divorce. That is wicked and that is wrong and that is sinful. And the Bible does not condone that. And you have absolutely, and don't quote me headship verses. Don't quote me, wives, submit to your husbands. Submitting to your husbands doesn't mean you beating them up physically or emotionally. You read the verse before that, right, about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Did, did, did Christ speak harshly to his wife? Did he intimidate his wife? Did he provoke his wife? Did he punch his wife? Did he push his wife? Like, no. You sacrifice, right? And so it's never an excuse. It's never to be condoned. And if that's the situation that, that, that you find yourself in, you come talk to us. Ladies, you call me. You email me. You come grab one of our staff after the service. You let it be known because that is absolutely sinful and wrong, and we will deal with that in the, I mean, we will come down on that in, the, in, in a very strong way. So it doesn't mean that women stay in abusive relationships. Another question that we've gotten is, what if I married the wrong person? I'm in a marriage that I'm not happy in. And I think that I might have married the wrong person. But I, I don't like this person anymore. I really like this person, right? Like, I like this person on Facebook over here, right? they look good, you know, I see the pictures, they look good in a, you know, bathing suit or whatever, like, you know, they really write me nice things, and they seem pretty nice, well-adjusted people, and I married crazy, so I think I married the wrong person, and we get all jacked up about, like, you know, the one, right, like, I, I didn't marry the one the first time, I want to correct that and get out of this marriage, and then really marry the one over here that I should have married when I was back in high school, because I went to my reunion, and they were looking good, and they seemed pretty nice, let me just give you a little piece of advice for those of you who are married or aspire to be married. If you are married, you are married to the wrong person. Now let that sink in for a second. If you are married or you hope to be married, you are always going to be married to the wrong person. The myth of, inca- of compatibility is bunk. You are never going to marry the right one. There is no one. If you're married, you're married. If you're not, you're not. You're always going to marry the wrong person because you're always going to marry a sinner who pretends to be nicer and cuter and funnier than they are until you get married. And then you're going to realize that it's never the right person. And even if they are the right person when you get married, they're going to change. 
They're going to change 20 times. I love what Lewis Smead says. He's an ethicist in California. He's a Christian. He says, man, my wife has been married to like five different men, and they're all me over the course of our 30 or 40 years of marriage because you always change. You have kids, and you change, right? Like you're not who you were in your 20s when you're in your 30s, and I'm sure I'm 33. Like when we're 40, Emma's going to be like, who are you? Like you're a freak, right? Like you're always changing, and life has a way when you walk through sickness, when you walk through uh, just a period of just being stubborn. Like they change, and so you've got to love them through the change, and you never marry the right person. You're always going to marry the wrong person. And so marriage, for those of you who just have these crazy lofty expectations, is always hard work because we're on the other side of the fall. Always going to be hard work. I don't care how pretty she is. I don't care how many times he works out, how many hours he works out a day at the gym. I don't care how many smooth lines he's got. It will be hard. And you're always marrying the wrong person. Now, another question, what if my Christian spouse is trying to divorce me? What if I'm in right now walking through that process and they're initiating divorce against me? The Bible says that in that case, then you need to bring that, again, to the church. You need to bring that. If you're a covenant member of SOMA, you need to come and tell us. And, and there's going to be some investigation and there's going to be some getting into that situation because, again, the Bible says that you should not initiate divorce. And so if, if your spouse is trying to divorce you and you are a member of this church, we would just say, come and talk to us. We want to be involved. We want to be engaged in that process. We want to talk to both parties because, again, everybody's got an exception clause. In your Bible, you'll notice that what I read this morning, there's an asterisk next to what Paul said. In the bottom of the page, it says, well, except for you in your case, right? Like everybody's got an exception clause. Everybody's got an out. Everybody's got a reason why their divorce is legit and why they need to divorce this person and marry this person and be single, right? Like everybody has got one. And so, man, if you're in the process of divorcing, that is a discipline issue, and we will deal with that um, one way or another. And so bring them to us. Let's talk about that. Let's work on reconciliation. Let's get some counseling. Let's talk it through. And again, let's exhaust every avenue of reconciliation available to us. Now, what if I'm already divorced? Another question. Am I damaged goods, and can I remarry? What if I'm already divorced? I'm in this room, and I'm going through a divorce, or I'm I've been divorced. Like, what does God think? Does God just hate me? Am I out? Am I damaged goods? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. God loves you. God is for you. The cross of Jesus Christ shows you. It is a punctuation on God's objective love for you. And so if you are in this room today and you are a repentant divorced person, the same as if you're a repentant married person or a repentant single person, like, there's no ongoing punishment for you related to your Divorce, like you repent and you ask for forgiveness and you receive mercy. And the Bible says God gives mercy. He is waiting to give mercy to those who will repent. Now, it may involve some reconciliation. It may involve uh, some restitution. It may involve some apologies. It may involve some, you know, going back and trying to make things right. But the bottom line is, no, you're not damaged goods. Yes, God will accept you. Yes, God is for you because the blood and the, and the, and the death and the life of Jesus Christ for you on your behalf covers all sin, including sexual sin, married sin, divorce sin, single sin, all of it. And on the question of can you remarry, man, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm just going to say, like, as, as a guy who studied this, I've written papers on it in seminary, right? Like, I mean, I've studied this. I've talked about this. And the reason I say I don't know is not because I don't know the Bible. It's because I don't know you. So don't, don't be too quick to grant yourself an exception before you've talked to somebody else about it. Because maybe the, the deal is you've gotten divorced and maybe you can't be remarried. 
according to what the Bible says. Maybe you've not pursued that and you've not gone down the path of reconciliation or you divorced because you weren't happy, not because there was an actual legitimate biblical clause and you need to take a step back and reevaluate. But maybe, maybe in the case of, you know, your husband has uh, done something terrible, he's abused your family and he's run away and kind of created this mess for your family, maybe you do have a legitimate case. Maybe your spouse has died and you're free to, like, I don't know, but come and talk to us again. Like, let's engage on this because inevitably there are going to be those of you in this room who ask us down the road, will you do my marriage? Like, I'm getting married again, and will you do my wedding? And the answer is going to be, let's sit down and talk. So don't, like, come to us the week before you're ready to get married and say, hey, we'd like to get married in somebody's living room where you just kind of rubber stamp this. The answer is going to be no because we want to get to know your situation. And, and so and it's, it's very difficult to give a hard answer. And like, say, in every case, the Bible says you just do what you want, and you're legit and free to get remarried. That's not what it says. Matter of fact, there's a lot more passages against remarriage than there are for it. It's actually kind of an issue of silence in the Bible in terms of can you or not. So we want to engage around that. We want to talk about that. and want to do that in a biblical way. And then the last thing I'll just say is this and we'll be done. What about if I'm going through a rough patch right now in my marriage? Because I think there's a lot more people in this room that are probably um, not walking through a divorce. But again, you are thinking about divorce. You are wrestling with this issue right now. And you're saying, like, is there hope for us? Man, we're going through a rough patch. And I've been fantasizing and, and, and desiring, like, an escape plan. Like, I'm kind of hatching this escape plan with this girl at work or with this guy in my office or this guy in my, you know, nursing ward hall. Like, I've been kind of thinking about this. My neighbor, my best friend's husband, like, this Facebook relationship has kind of popped back up, and all of a sudden, like, my wife and I are fighting, and then, wow, what do you know? It's like a coincidence. I get an email or a Facebook message from an old friend who wants to get together for coffee. And if you think I'm talking about your story, I have nobody in mind here, okay? So like, let that be the Holy Spirit. But I'm just telling you, one of the ways that we are seeing people reconnect and, and have adulterous affairs is through Facebook, right? And so um, all of a sudden, like, what do we do in that? We're, we're fighting or we're not talking, and this is just a war zone. Like, we've hit a rough patch. What do we do? And I would just say three quick things to you. A, remember uh, God's promise to you and your promise to your spouse, right? Like, remember that God's promise, God made a promise. He made a vow to you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Again, Lewis Smead said that human destiny as a whole, all of human destiny, the cosmos and the world, all hinges on a promise that God made to reconcile all things to himself. And when you see God sending Jesus down, living the life you should have lived, dying the death you should have died, hanging on the cross, what did Jesus do in that moment when he looked out and he saw a bunch of sinners rallied around him, mocking him and, and, and being unfaithful to him. He didn't get up off the cross and say, I'm out of here. He stayed. He remained. He said, I will not leave because my love is anchored in my character, my promise that I'm going to do good for these people. And that is what I would say to you. Remember your God who loves you. Find strength and resources in him. And that's the only way. Man, that is the only way you'll be able to forgive. That's the only way you'll be able to walk through difficult seasons is if you know and have experienced the love of God in that kind of a deep way. And then remember your promise to your spouse. Marriage is not an emotional feeling about how I feel about you right now. Every wedding I do, I say, man, I just want you to stand here before these people and I want you to understand what marriage is. It is not I feel fuzzy, warm feelings about you right now. It is a promise of how I'm going to act towards you in the future. And that's what marriage is. So remember the promise you made. Remember your promise to your spouse. Remember that the gospel means that God can restore 
anything. He can bring resurrection out of seeming death. He can snatch uh, victory from the jaws of defeat like God is a resurrecting God. No marriage is too hopeless. No situation is too hopeless. It can be redeemed. It can be revived. It can be restored. The feelings can come back, but the feelings will often follow action. The feelings will often follow counseling. The feelings will often follow dark, very dark, very long nights of the soul. But there is hope for you. And so if you were in this room and you were here this morning and you were teetering on, I'm about to leave. Don't do it. The gospel means that God can bring life where there's been death. If you will hang in there and you will take it a day at a time and you will not be prideful and you will reach out, the Bible says there can be restoration in any relationship. Even if you've separated, even if you've divorced, I've seen people get remarried after being divorced for a decade and come back together and get remarried and God just restore that and God be all over that and don't count him out on that. And then, man, just come and see us. Like, come and see us. Come and talk to us. Some of you guys are struggling so deeply, and you have not let anybody know, and you are just, like, suffering in silence. You come and you see us. You come and you talk to us. We love nothing more in this church than to walk alongside people who are going through brokenness and hard times, and we would love nothing more than to come alongside you, man, not in judgment, not in wrath, but in love and in grace and encouraging you and in truth, right, too. Grace, love, truth, those are not mutually exclusive, but just to come alongside you and be a cheerleader for your marriage and for your relationship and to see what God can do. And so, man, as we close today, I just want you to be encouraged that this message is not intended to be some kind of a lightning bolt to the heart of divorced people. This is an invitation to say, man, God loves you. God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful God. And so, man, we should reflect him in the way that we live out our marriages. We should be covenant-keeping people. And so let's do that together. Let's ferociously be committed to our marriages, our spouses, to reconciliation where it's possible. And man, where we diverge and that can't happen and, and, and a marriage dies, let's mourn together and let's grieve together. Let's rally around. Let's pray for and let's just ask God to do the miraculous and the impossible to revive dead marriages. And, and in this room today, we're going to have an opportunity to come and picture the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus through communion as soon as I'm done here. I mean, I know like there are some of you in this room that you are in a perpetual state of fighting. You are at each other's throats and there needs to be some reconciliation and restoration. Or maybe you had a fight. Let's not pretend like in the van on the way down, you weren't like yelling at your kids and like, you know, cussing each other. Like, let's not pretend that didn't happen on the way to church sometimes, right? So let's get straight. Let's get right. And what I want to challenge you guys to do today is if you're married and you're in this room, I want, to, I want to encourage you today as we come to take communion and we celebrate the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us, that purchased forgiveness and mercy for us. I want to invite you, if you're a married couple, to take communion together today. Like to come up here, to grab it together. And that might mean for some of you husbands that you go and you take your wife out in the lobby and you confess some sin. That might mean you get on your knees right where you're at and you confess some sin. That might mean, ladies, you confess some sin to your husbands, but let's make it right. Don't you dare come to this table to take communion and act like everything's okay with God when everything's not okay here with your spouse. That cannot be the case. You cannot be right with God and at war with your spouse. Right? So let's repent, let's confess, let's cry out for help. A simple little prayer for those of you husbands who are like, I've never prayed with my wife, I don't even know how to do that. Like, here, here it is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I sinned against you. God help us. That's it. Like, there's no magical formula, there's no, like, cartwheels. It's, that's it. 
You ask for forgiveness, you confess, and then you receive the blood, the, the symbolic blood and the, uh, and the bread. Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And maybe for some of you, you become a Christian today. Maybe some of you husbands, you need to get saved. You don't need to just be reconciled to your spouse. You need to be reconciled to your heavenly father. Some of you wives need to be reconciled to your heavenly father. And so you come and you repent and you receive his mercy and his grace. And you find a renewed relationship with your spouse. Um, but man, let's just pray. And let's just let God do what he does here in this place today. And we're going to sing a couple songs. We'll go a few minutes over. And that's okay. Because, man, we only get to do this once a week. And so we're excited to celebrate and be reconciled. And then nothing brings more joy to my heart as a pastor than to see people be reconciled. And, and man, simultaneously, if you're here in this room and you're walking through a difficult season, man, May the community of faith, the community of Jesus' body rally around you and love you. And, and man, don't you dare feel ashamed. Don't you dare feel ashamed or embarrassed. You come and you receive the body of Jesus broken for you. He will be your husband. He will be your spouse. He will love you and accept you and forgive you in a way that no man or no woman can ever do. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for receiving us as your own, for calling us children for reconciling us to you. God, I pray that reconciliation would be the theme of our families and our marriages. God, that we would not just be like the rest of the world and in bitterness and rage and anger, cut people off and throw people out. But God, that we would be a reconciling, redeeming community of believers and that would be countercultural in the way that we forgive and we love. And God, that doesn't excuse abuse or sin. God, you take that so seriously because you're also a holy God. But it does make space and it creates room for marriages to be restored, relationships to be reconciled, and for people ultimately to be brought back into a relationship with their Heavenly Father. So God, I pray that you would redeem, that you would restore, that you would renew and make new our covenants to one another today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to respond now with uh, communion. Come, we take a piece of bread, tear it off, dip it in the cup. We have stations in the front, station in the back. Um, also, after we take communion, we're going to have a time of uh, taking up our offering, which is simply a joyful response of obedience to God's love and his generosity and giving us Jesus Christ. So if you're a guest here, we have no expectation that you would give anything. We're just glad that you're here. If you're a regular attender or a covenant member of SOMA, we want to invite you to give generously as a demonstration of uh, your response to God's faithfulness to you, of your money uh, today, this morning, uh, just as a response of generosity. So let's do that. Let's take communion and let's give back to the Lord.
hills in order stood earth receive a frame from everlasting Turn as a tree. 